Welcome to OECD Podcast, where policy meets people. I'm just going to start right at the top with uh, World Health Organization statistics on violence against women. One in three women around the world have experienced physical or sexual violence, or both, at least once in their life. Most of this with an intimate sexual partner, but not always. 38% of women around the world who are murdered are murdered by their male intimate partners. 7% of women around the world have reported being sexually assaulted by someone who is not their intimate partner. In 2017, OECD countries declared that violence against women was their number one priority. And yet, here we are still. I'm Clara Young, and today I talk to Sylvia Walby, OBE. She's the director of the Violence and Society Center at the University of London and a UNESCO chair in gender research. So hello, Professor Walby. Hello. A couple of years ago, you and your colleagues examined data from the Crime Survey for England and Wales covering 1994 to 2014, and you found something surprising. What was it? We found that there was a difference in the rates of violence depending on how you measured it. And the measurement meant that you could see a lot more violence or you could only see a small amount of the violence. And the statisticians were often not including the repetition of violence in their statistics. And if you did include the repetitions, which of course is common in domestic violence, then you would see a lot more violence and a lot more violence against women. Now, why was this the case? And by repetition, you mean repeated assault in the home? Yes, domestic violence is very often repeated. Uh, most violent crimes are not. Violent crimes by a stranger is typically happens just once. But domestic violence, violence uh, uh, against a person by an intimate partner, is very often repeated. It has a distinctive profile. Now, why were the repetitions not included in the official statistics then? When we asked that question, they said they'd never included them before. Tradition. And then they said, well, it will make a difference to the overall trend if those few cases where there are high-frequency victims, a few cases where victims have multiple repeats, they would distort the trend because you would see spikes which weren't real. I see. So what were the statistics that you found in looking at the crime survey data? So we investigated whether their claim that it would distort the trend was actually the case. We found it wasn't. That if we took the simple device of taking a three-year rolling average, that is, averaging across three years, then there was no spike, no artificial disruption to the trend if we included all of the cases. So we argued that including all of the cases was a much more accurate way of counting violent crime. It didn't disrupt the trend. And then you could see the extent to which this was domestic violence or violence against women. So what were the um, percentages, what were the statistics that you found in your, in your study? Well, we, we showed that there was a lot more violent crime, but not only was there more violent crime overall, there was more violent crime against women. And that was because women are disproportionately the victims of domestic violence. Now, I read that there was a 70% rise in criminal offenses against women, violent crime against women, um, over the period that you covered. Is that right? That's right. At that point, we were looking at simply one year's worth of data. And in that year that we looked at, uh, that was the extra amount of crime which would have been hidden 
if they had kept the cap of five on the data. And the other thing I also uh, noticed was that you also included rape in violent crimes, and that was put in a different category before. Is that true? Yes. There was a traditional category of violence against the person, which included violence which gave rise to a visible physical injury, violence which didn't have a, a visible injury, but it didn't include rape. Rape was considered to be a sexual offence and wasn't included as violence. Probably that's a result of the historical category of sexual offences, which many years ago included consensual sexual offences in the days when male homosexuality was criminalised. And so a long time ago, a lot of the so-called offences weren't, in fact, violent offences. But after they decriminalised male homosexuality, they didn't change the category. So they left the category of rape as if it were separate. I see. Now, you pinpoint the increase in violence against women in the UK as beginning in 2009. What do you attribute that to? Yes, so after we took the cap off, uh, we looked at the trend over time and we saw that the lowest point in our time series was around 2008 and after that it went up. That was the same time as the economic crisis. So it, was, it was the financial no and economic crisis and the ensuing austerity correlated with the increase uh, of violence. Now that increase in violence could be attributed to domestic violence. It was an increase in the repetitions of the violence and not an increase in the number of victims and wasn't an increase in the amount of violence against men. Now, what's going on um, that there would be this increase in repeated domestic violence following the financial crisis? What's your theory? So we asked what had changed in, the, in that time period. And the biggest change was the cutbacks in welfare expenditure, which were gendered. There were disproportionate cuts uh, in uh, benefits and in availability of benefits uh, to women rather than men. And this correlated very highly with the timing of the increased rate of domestic violence, especially domestic violence against women. So you're saying that austerity measures, the cutbacks, disproportionately affected women? The thesis is that the correlation could be interpreted in such a way. Okay. I'm being very careful here to tell you we found a correlation, and you're absolutely right that it can be interpreted as if it were the cause. Okay. Now, you say that after the financial crisis, another comment, another finding that you noticed was that women continued to work outside the home, but they also worked more than before at home because I guess presumably households couldn't afford care workers as much as they did before. Could you talk about that? Yes, that was the work I did on the crisis and asking what were the changes in women's employment, unemployment, and economic inactivity. And one of the traditional approaches to um, economic downturns uh, and recessions on women's economic behaviour was to assume that women would leave employment. And what we found was that women didn't, in fact, become more economically inactive. If they lost their jobs, they'd stayed seeking the jobs, so they became more unemployed. The crisis didn't push women back into the home in the traditional understanding of being pushed back into the home to being 
economically inactive. I want to go back to um, the austerity measures because it, so many countries put austerity measures into effect following the 2008 crisis. And I know that we have to be careful when we're talking about this, but I'd like to get dig a little more into what were and are the gendered effects of austerity. There are several different dimensions to austerity, and not every country did the same thing. Exactly. The response to the um, government deficits didn't necessarily give rise to austerity. It did in some countries and not others. And austerity was not a necessary consequence to attempt to close the budget deficit. Mm -hmm. So you're saying it's not the, it wasn't the only solution? Well, it would have been possible to raise taxes. Mm -hmm. So the raising of taxes or the cutting of welfare is a gender issue over which there was considerable contestation and uh, groups such as the, the gender budgeting movement and the women's budget groups uh, identified the extent to which those cuts were disproportionate against women in some countries. If they were disproportionately against women, it involved things such as the cutback in benefits and income support, um, the reductions in social housing, and cutbacks in the welfare expenditure. We also looked at the extent to which there were cutbacks in the services to prevent violence against women. And we looked at the expenditures at a local council level. And we found that there were disproportionate cuts in those services, 30% cuts in those services, and that some of those cuts could have had then a disproportionate cuts uh, effects uh, on issues of violence. That very naturally brings me to um, my next question, which is about women holding parliamentary seats. According to the OECD, 29% of parliamentary seats are held by women. And you have found a link, a very interesting link, between the percentage of seats held by women in parliament and the rate of femicide. Could you uh, talk to us about that? Yes, that was a global data set. Mm -hmm. We investigated um, the correlation between femicide and the percentage of women in parliament. By femicide here, we were taking a very simple definition, that is the killing of women. And in those countries where women were more present in parliament, the rate of femicide was lower. Now, why is there such a strong correlation? It was very interesting because there wasn't a correlation with levels of economic development. Uh, femicide didn't correlate with economic development. It did correlate with gender balance in decision-making, and the percentage of women in parliament was probably indicative of the extent to which women were involved in policy and political decision-making. That suggests that those decisions on policy could have real implications for rates of violence. And when you say there was much less of a correlation with economic activity, do you mean by that women working in middle management and top management? How do you define that by economic activity and gender effects? That was just GDP, okay. gross domestic product. Okay. Um, it wasn't the case um, that the richer the country, uh, the lower the rate of femicide. I see. Okay. So that's a very strong takeaway more women in political positions of power or decision-making, the lower the femicide. Yes. Okay. A large part of the problem with violence against women is social norms, what people think or have thought is acceptable or normal, like marital rape. What's the most effective way to alter what people think is acceptable? There is another question as mm -hmm. to whether norms are the most 
important part of that process. For example, there have been changes in the law on rape. Historically, a lot of countries didn't treat rape in marriage as a crime. Mm -hmm. It was only in the 1980s and 1990s that countries began to criminalise rape in marriage. Probably that was important and maybe more important than attitudes. But perhaps you might say these are questions, empirical questions. Can we measure the effects, changes in the law, changes in economic position, changes in political representation, changes in attitudes? This is the agenda for women's studies, for social science. These are questions for which we need the resources to investigate these questions properly. Do we have in your opinion, enough data on these four areas that you just mentioned? Is the data good enough? The data on comparing rates of violence in different countries is very poor. Uh, the data comparing um, femicide is adequate, but the data comparing other forms of violence isn't. It's too uneven in the methodology on the different surveys which are beginning to be introduced. The administrative data on non-lethal forms of violence are very different in different places. We don't really have the data to make these cross-national comparisons which would enable us to properly assess the implications of different policies. The only robust data we've got is on femicide. What can the OECD be focusing more, uh, in your view, to really accelerate reducing violence against women? The OECD has an interesting potential role in coordination and has a long-standing commitment to the improvement of data. So one of the issues it might do is to make recommendations about improving the way in which statistics are produced. So for example, we have a new international classification of crime for statistical purposes, which only insists that homicide is gender disaggregated and other forms of violence are not. If the OECD were to request that forms of violent assault, when recorded by public authorities such as the police, were gender disaggregated, so you could see the sex of the victim, that would be interesting. It would be an interesting contribution to the public debate, drawing on the kinds of expertise that the OECD has. Well, thank you very much for speaking to us, Sylvia. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to OECD Podcasts. I'm Clara Young. To find out more about what we've been talking about, go to oecd.org slash gender. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and soundcloud.com slash OECD.